knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Going, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And I wanted to mention a few things before we get to today's topic. You can now find all of Theology Gals podcasts and blogs at theologygals.com. We'll be sharing more blogs on there in the near future and have some different gals that will be contributing to that. And if you would like to support Theology Gals on our pay on the website, if you kind of scroll down to the bottom, you can either support us monthly on Patreon, even as little as a few dollars a month, or a one-time gift on PayPal, and there's links on the bottom of the page for both of those. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about the means of grace. I know there's been a lot of questions for me when I was new to Reformed theology. That was a very new idea for me because I really thought the Word of God preached was primarily to teach us how to obey better. And the sacraments were about obedience to God. Those were the things that I had been taught. I'm sure that it was similar for you, Angela. Yes. Um, I, you know, the church environment where I grew up and also churches that um, my husband and I have attended um, since then, I would say that the preaching time, I probably thought of, you know, through example as sort of a more informational time, if you want to call it that, a, a time, not exactly academic, but just a time to learn things that I didn't already know. Um, and that's true. We do learn things in sermons, but I don't think that I thought of it. Well, I know I didn't think of it the same way that our doctrine of means of grace um, teaches about the word of God preached. And I certainly didn't understand the sacraments to be um, the gospel made visible. So just like you said, the the doctrine of the means of grace and what, what it is to be a means of grace and what those are for was very new to me when we were reforming and very helpful to me also. You know, before we get to what the means of grace are, 
I know that we're really going to be focusing on the Reformed and Presbyterian view on this and what I believe to be the biblical view. Now, within Reformed Baptist circles, I know there are different views. And I've learned, and I think you know a little bit more about this because you were in a Reformed Baptist group, Angela, so maybe you can share. But I always thought that the Reformed Baptist position was very different from the Reformed Reformed Presbyterian position, although I've learned recently that there are Reformed Baptists who hold to a more historic reform position, believing that they are means of grace. Can you expound on that? Yes, you're exactly right. Um, I would say within just that narrow little group of Reformed Baptists, I'm not really talking about all Baptists or, uh, you know, sort of general evangelicals who would be mostly Baptist. I'd say out in that world, the view is very like what you and I described as our past view before we learned about the means of grace. But just within the narrow world of Reformed Baptists, I would say that there's variation in um, individual conviction. And that's sort of ranging from, you know, the London Baptist Confession uses the language of ordinance. Um, which is different than our language of sacrament. And of course, the Westminster Catechism uses the word ordinance also. So, um, but we do have a slightly different view. And there are, I have met Reformed Baptists who hold to the 1689 Confession who do have a means of grace almost sacramental view that is slightly different than what I would think is the more predominant view of ordinance that's leaning a little bit more towards obedience and a little bit um, less towards uh, means of grace. So it really does vary um, the view on the means of grace within the Reformed Baptist world. Yeah, and that was new for me because the Reformed Baptist that I know really held to the position in the Second London Baptist Confession. Mm -hmm. So let's just start out by talking about what we mean when we say means of grace. And what we're really talking about is means of grace are instruments which God has established to give grace to his people. And I think because they are creaturely means that it has resulted in people thinking that, that this is something that we do, but it is actually God that is at work in these things. And specifically, we'll be talking about um, the word preached and the sacraments, baptism and communion and, and even prayer. But these are things that are essential to our spiritual growth are essential to our faith. And these are things that God uses to bring grace to his people. And, you know, just talking about what that means, you know, we know that there is common grace that is um, given to all um, men on earth, and um, it's what God uses to uphold his creation. But there is also saving grace, special grace, And what we believe about the means of grace is that God has chosen to set aside these means that look perfectly ordinary, Um, just like you said, they, they sort of appear creaturely, but he has chosen and ordained to work through these means that seem like nothing special to convey his special grace 
saving grace to his people specifically. You know, I really like what the larger catechism, the Westminster larger catechism. Actually, before I say this, I wanted to mention we're not going to be going through a lot of scripture on today's episode, partly just because of time. I have so many pages of notes on this week's episode, and we just won't have time for that. But in the episode notes, I'm going to link all of the confessions that we discussed today with proof texts. And I would encourage going to those and reading all of the scripture. So we're not just basing what we believe on the catechism and the confessions. We believe that the catechism and confessions are a clear summary of what scripture teaches. But the Westminster Larger Catechism defines the means of grace as the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation and identifies them as all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. That's a great summary of what we're talking about right here in the means of grace. Yes, um, I really like how the catechism talks about um, Christ communicating to his church the benefits of his mediation. And that's really talking about um, that saving grace. Um, it's, it's how Christ um, speaks to us and shows us all that he has done for us. I think the thing that might be confusing to people is that when we talk about baptism, when we talk about the Lord's Supper specifically, or even when we talked about the preached word, it is something that that seems like we do. We choose to baptize our children or mm. take communion or sit in church under the preached word or the pastor preaches his word, but it is within God's sovereignty. It is God at work in us through those things because these are the means that he has chosen. And, um, you know, as Presbyterians, we do not completely eliminate any element of obedience. I mean, we do believe that um, as believing parents that we are commanded to give our children the sign and seal of the covenant community. So there is that element of obedience, but what we believe about baptism as a means of grace is that just as you said, the Lord has chosen to work through that particular means and it's not automatic. There's nothing special about the water um, there are other views of sacraments that almost believe that uh, grace is like a substance that's automatically put on you if you're baptized. We don't believe that. But just as the catechism um, says, it's made effectual to the elect. So those who are elect, who um, God is going to regenerate and bring them to faith in himself, these are the means that he uses. And it's not just baptism. It's the preached word. In fact, our, um, our catechism says it's primarily the preached word. Um, and then also the Lord's Supper is that sacrament that is a continuation, a sanctifying sacrament, and a feeding. One thing we talked about on our episode several weeks ago with R. Scott Clark is understanding the difference between the, the sign and the sink and the thing signified. So mm -hmm. the water itself, 
does not do something, um, but it signifies something that the Lord does. But before we get to kind of talking about the different means of grace and what they are and what the Word of God says about them, I wanted to talk about some of the move away from the means of grace Basically, I mean, essentially within uh, modern evangelicalism, there's a, there's other faiths which recognize means of grace, but recognize it very differently, like Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in broader evangelicalism, I think that people have made their own means of grace. For instance, in the Word of Faith movement, people think that having enough faith will cause God to demonstrate more grace to you, to heal you, to different things like that. I read a really interesting article this week by a pastor, and I'll link it in the episode notes. I've got a lot of links for the episode notes, but he talked about um, corporal punishment as a means of grace. And as a mom, there were things that, if I look back, there were things that I thought that if I did write that my children had a greater chance of of having the grace of God um, poured out on them, and I I think that that is one of the things that we fight against, be, especially those of us who grew up in more of a broader evangelicalism, thinking mm-hmm. that there's things that we do that bring about greater grace to us, like mm-hmm. altar calls or certain emotions in music or. Oh, the rededicating our lives to Christ. How many times did I do that at summer youth camp? You know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I'm just thinking about these, you know, where we're talking about in broader evangelicalism, where we've ultimately made our own extra biblical means of grace. I, I sort of have a thought. I was reading this week um, in um, Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology about the means of grace, and he's got um, a really interesting section, and we're going to link this in the show notes, but um, he's got a really interesting section where he goes through some different views of the means of grace, and um, he's got a section where he talks about um, the Anabaptist view you know, starting around the time of the Reformation, um, this particular view is sort of the opposition, the opposite of the Reformed view. I'm just going to read a little quote. The Anabaptists and other mystical sects of the age of the Reformation and of later times virtually deny that God avails himself of means in the distribution of his grace. They stress the fact that God is absolutely free in communicating his grace and therefore can hardly be conceived of as bound to such external means. It's uh, what I think is so interesting about this thought is, um, you know, I've based on a lot of my reading and studying, and we've talked about this on prior episodes, but broader evangelicalism does have a lot of its roots in Anabaptist theology and, um, and especially certain parts of evangelicalism, but even the parts that lean more reformed or Calvinistic, um, a lot of American Christianity has its roots in Anabaptist theology. And as I was reading this quote and think really just thinking about how that relates to American evangelicalism, it, it sort of dawned on me that this underlying theology that God does not tie himself to anything and just works in any way that he chooses— while it is true that God can and does 
um, work in any way that he chooses. We, of course, as Reformed, believe that what he has chosen to do is bind himself to ordinarily use these means of grace. But the outflow of this theology that says that he doesn't do that at all is this extra biblical means of grace. Because um, in lieu of the true means of grace that God has ordained, this system of thought that it could be anything naturally lends itself to start thinking, well, it is certain things. So think about worship services where the lights are off and there's smoke machines and we're all swaying and everyone's singing very rhythmic music. And we've talked about that before as well on prior episodes. Um, and it's that experience and um, emotionalism where we get into a pattern of believing, I need that hit to get close to God and to get more of God. And, and that's my, becomes my um, definition of a deeper relationship with God. Well, what that is doing is elevating something that is not an ordained means of grace and replacing the ordained means of grace with it. And um, so I, I do think that all of the things you mentioned, altar calls, music, rededications, mysticism, experiences, those show up very, very often in our American culture as sort of faux means of grace. You know, there was out of the Anabaptist beliefs, this tendency towards mysticism and mm -hmm. experiencing things where we judge our spiritual condition based on experience rather than based on the truths of God's word. And it, it sort of relates to that whole idea that we've um, talked about before, the, the dualism of, you know, these seemingly creaturely means, well, those are base, those are common, and those are natural. They don't have anything to do with the spiritual world. And so um, God is going to commune with me in a very direct way, um, and it sort of divorces the body and the spirit. And of course, we know that that's Gnosticism, so it's not, it's not correct. Um, but we see it a lot in our American Christianity. The means of grace confirm our faith, and yet within um, broader evangelicalism, it is certain emotions and experiences which mm -hmm. people use to confirm their faith. And I think this is something that was so earth-shattering to me the first time that I was learning about the means of grace and understanding this doctrine. It was a very big light bulb moment for me that that God has ordained the word preached and the sacraments administered in the corporate assembly. He has ordained those things to convey his saving grace to me, to strengthen my faith, to feed me. And it's really not about whether or not I'm feeling that they're working. I can trust what he has ordained so that when I leave my service, and go home, I can say to myself, I might not have felt anything, but I trust that God is using the means that he ordained to strengthen me and grow me. And it just takes all of the pressure off to think that I have to create the, you know, this monumental occasion, this experience, these emotions. It's really not about the emotions. It's about trusting the Lord and the way that he has told us that he'll work. 
I think another thing that we see is personal practices and spiritual disciplines as regarded as more central than the sacraments of the church and the ordinary nurture and substance of the faith. And I think one of the ways, one of the reasons that this uh, happens is that the sacraments are seen as our means of obedience instead of God's means of grace. Ultimately, it's a lot of law and a lot of what we need to do and little gospel. Right. You're making me think right now about when I was growing up that I knew someone who um, did not get baptized until they were in college because they were um, just a little crowd shy. And I remember um, at this church that, of course, getting baptized, you um, involved you needed to write out in length your testimony and be uh, ready to share it before you got baptized. And um, so that was a little bit of this person's um, struggle with, you know, a little bit of stage fright like that. But I remember the conversation that took multiple conversations that took place to convince this person that you need to get baptized. And it was all about you're being disobedient because you're not getting baptized. And, um, you know, baptism is your public testimony. If, if you are unwilling to do that, what does it say about you? And so the whole tying of baptism to me and something that I do, and it's about my attitude, it actually was not particularly helpful for this person. Um, it was a shake to assurance, you know? So, um, the, and I do think that this view is rather common. It's very common in evangelicalism and uh, especially sort of in the fundamentalist world that baptism is my obedience and it's my public testimony. It's my choosing to identify with Christ. And you can see how that sort of relates to an Arminian view of soteri- soteriology even because it's tying it to a decision and um of course, we know that we do believe in Christ and our faith is real and our faith is something that we do, but because we believe that God calls us and brings us to faith, then we don't believe that baptism is really about decisionalism. So um, I definitely see that sort of obedience element in a lot of American Christianity. The sacraments specifically are seen, seen as means of commitment or means of remembrance instead of God's means of grace. One thing I wanted to talk about briefly is the regulative principle of worship and the means of grace. So in the same way we worship God in the way that he's commanded, we also recognize the instruments which God has chosen to um, demonstrate his grace towards us. And if you aren't familiar with the regulative principle of worship, we did an episode on the regulative principle of worship, and we're going to be doing an episode on worship specifically because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about worship is because of the influence of the charismatic movement, even in what may seem like non-charismatic churches where worship becomes more about what we experience than about worshiping the true God in the way that he's commanded. But the regulative principle of worship, we worship God in the ways that he's commanded, not just how we 
feel like worshiping him. The point of worship is not to experience a certain emotion, which I think has become very common today. And I do recommend um, our listeners go back and uh, listen to that episode. The, the one thing that really helps me understand the regulative principle is just to think about how much um, indication we have in the Old Testament that God gives clear commands about how he is to be worshipped, and he rejects worship that comes to him outside of the commands that he has made. If you think about um, Cain bringing the grain offering, um, we are not free to worship God in any way that we invent and imagine. He has decreed the way that he would uh, that he desires to be worshipped, and so that's the underlying basis of the regulative principle. And of course, because of the other view, which is more the normative principle, which is I can worship God any way that's not for, forbidden explicitly in Scripture. That's the pervasive view. Because of that view, there's a lot of wrong understanding today about how we think about the Spirit and His work in us. So, um, you know, we just think that it's sort of a direct communion, completely unmediated, um, you know, straight personal download. Um, And that's exactly what we believe that the means of grace is for. It's part of Christ's mediation to us. Um, and that's very, very different from um, the pervasive view. The other thing I wanted to mention before we kind of get into the ordinary means of grace is I think there's a lot of just misunderstandings about the work of the Holy Spirit. We did an episode on the work of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times people that have a more charismatic view will look at the Reformed and say, you downplay the work of the Holy Spirit. But I I would submit to you that we elevate the work of the Holy Spirit even more than mm-hmm. the charismatic movement. A lot of the work of the Holy Spirit in the charismatic movement is dependent on us and our faith and and seeking to experience things. But we believe that the work of the Holy Spirit is very powerful. It, it makes dead men alive in Christ. It sanctifies those that are justified. So we have a very robust view of the work of the Holy Spirit. So just talking about, keep that in mind as we talk about the ordinary means of grace, because throughout this, we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Westminster Shorter Catechism 88 says, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. And this summarizes what we're going to be talking about in this section, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Like Angela was talking about earlier, that these are made effectual to the elect. This is not a common grace. Um, Common grace, we think of the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But these are made effectual to the elect. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention just real quick, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this, but the Westminster and Heidelberg differ on whether prayer 
is a means of grace. So the Westminster Larger Catechism says the outward and ordinary means that Christ uses to communicate his blessings included include all the the sacraments, the the word preached, and also prayer. That Heidelberg does not include prayer. And I'm not going to get into that debate right now. I am going to link some articles in the episode notes if you want to read more about that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Angela? Yeah. The only thing that I would add is just that my very basic understanding of the difference and the reason why would just be um, sort of tied to the idea that the the means of grace are administered by the church. Um, So the word preached by an ordained minister and then the sacraments administered by the church. And so you can see how adding prayer sort of changes that. And um, so that's all I would add in is that that's um, part of what the discussion is over prayer being uh, included or not included in the means. And prayer is included in the Heidelberg Catechism, but Mm -hmm. it's included in the Christian living or what some people call the gratitude section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And some people um, say that that is that when it speaks of prayer in in Westminster, that it's um, speaking specifically of prayer that happens in worship. But I'll include some links so we can So if you'd like to research that a little bit more, you can. So the first one we're going to address is the word as a means of grace. And we know that the preaching of the gospel brings people to faith. Um, the, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 89, says, How is the word made effectual to salvation? And the answer is, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. One thing that I read this week talked about how, and it may have been in Burkhoff's actually, I read so much, I can't remember where everything was, but that there are exceptions to this, that there may be a baby uh, that is given faith. For instance, you know, I think about even a child that I had that died before birth, a stillborn baby, and the Lord could have given that child faith outside of the preached word. Um, that that actually is a um, a characteristic element of the Reformed doctrine of the means of grace is that we do believe that God generally operates using these means, but is not so bound that he will never work outside of them. Right. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. So we've got the word as a means of grace and the sacraments. I want to talk a few minutes about what sacraments are, because I remember the first time I heard sacraments and I thought Catholics, that's that's Catholic. And we know that <laughs> the Catholics have many sacraments. And one of the themes in the Reformation was talking about what specifically a sacrament is. And in the Reformation, they really emphasize that the sacrament are only the things that the Lord has has brought about not these other things i think the catholics have marriage as a sacrament and um a host of other things but mm-hmm. one thing about the sacraments is our our faith is confirmed and strengthened in the sacraments 
this goes back to the sign and the seat and the things signified, but the sacraments confirm the promises in the gospel. They don't bring about, there's not magic in the water, as Angela said, said earlier. And one of the things that I think was helpful to me in understanding sacraments um, was to understand that they're the gospel made visible. Um, and, you know, just like you said um, before that, you know, term sacrament kind of strikes fear in the hearts of evangelicals. Oh, no, it's Catholic. Um, but our view is different than the Roman Catholic view um, because our Reformed view elevates the Word of God and the sacraments are never separated or divorced from the Word of God, but the Word of God always accompanies them and they're a visible representation of the gospel. Um, And the Roman Catholic view sort of pushes the Word of God into the background and the church itself is the means um, rather than the Word of God. And that's very different from our view. I like what John Calvin says. He says, a sacrament is an external sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences his promises of goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weaknesses of our faith. And we in turn testify our piety towards him, both before himself and before angels, as well as men. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is an holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to new believers. And that is what what the Reformation identified as sacraments were things that were instituted by Christ. So specifically specifically the Lord's Supper and baptism, or I should say baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I I like um, the language in the larger catechism, 162, is very similar to the shorter, um, but it adds um, that it's to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace, the benefits of his mediation. And of course, you know, um, very briefly, within the covenant of grace, that's an, that is um, language that in the Presbyterian and Reformed world, we differentiate between the outward administration of the covenant of grace and then the inward substance of the covenant of grace. So we do administer the signs, outward administration to our, um, we administer baptism to our infants And we do say that they are in the covenant of grace in the administrative sense. But to possess the substance of the covenant, one must be regenerated and respond in faith. And we do not believe that the administration of the sacrament um, causes that to happen automatically. We believe that that could happen before, during, or after. It's not so tied to the time of administration that it happens right at baptism, but the elect at the time of God's um, choosing and according to his will, that is when that will take place. And that's where the sovereignty of God fits in and something that we need to be mindful of. 
One of the things that I think brings confusion, especially if you're new to Reformed theology, is the fact that sacraments are signs and seals. There's some misunderstanding. So sign, they point to something, which Mm. is Christ and what he has done, and a seal. So it's not a seal of reality, like Federal Vision that believes that with that are that children are united to Christ in baptism we don't believe in that but rather it testifies to the truth of what has been done i think about uh, a long time ago um when people wrote beautiful letters and put them in envelopes and then would seal them closed with sealing wax and a ring with you know maybe a monogram or a um symbol of your family and that seal, when it arrives where, where the letter is going, signifies to the receiver, this is authentic. This is real. It's not a fake. Um, and so that seal, the seals that we have, our sacraments, signify to us that the work that Christ has done for you is real. It really happened, and it was really for you. Heidelberg Catechism 69, how is it signified and sealed to you in holy baptism that you have part in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Thus that Christ instituted this outward washing with water and joined therewith his prom- this promise that I am washed with his blood and spirit from the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as certainly as I am washed outwardly with the water, whereby commonly the filthiness of the body is taken away. And I do encourage going, I'm going to put, there's a lot of even confession and catechism. We've got the Westminster Standards and the Three Forms of Unity that I'm going to be linking and look at those scripture texts because we're not saying that the confessions and catechisms are elevated above scripture and our foundation, but that they are a summary of what we believe that scripture teaches. Mm-hmm. And um, so let's let's just move on to baptism. Yes. Westminster Westminster Confessions: the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such whether of age or infants as that grace belongs unto according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So that that's what Angela was talking about, that it is not tied necessarily to that point in time when they are baptized. And, you know, we, we talked about this part of um, our confession a little bit in our Federal Vision episodes because this is a very important point about what the Reformed believe about the efficacy of baptism. Um, the, you know, the federal visionists, they read this portion that says, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred, and they stop there. But the confession goes on to say, who is it conferred to? To such, whether of age or infants, as the grace belongs unto. That's the elect. And how, how is it conveyed? When? According to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So that makes it very clear that our belief 
um, on the efficacy of baptism is that it's not automatic. It's not if the water touches you, you're regenerated, you're unified to Christ. It is that it will be effective to those who are elect, who God calls according to the counsel of his own will in his appointed time. So let's talk about the Lord's Supper a little bit. Um, From Heidelberg Catechism, it talks about it, that it's sure signs of Christ's body and blood. So surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. And Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sacrament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is shewed forth and worthy receivers are not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. Now we have a different view than the Catholics and even the Lutherans, which, mm-hmm. you know, the Lutherans are monergists, but the Lutherans have different views of the sacrament. So we don't believe that Christ is bodily present in right. the, the bread and wine. Uh, the Lutheran um, language used is that Christ is in, with, and under the elements. And we believe that Christ is spiritually present. Um, But I'll tell you, the thing that was the most wonderful to me when I was learning about the Reformed view of the means of grace um, and how that relates to the Lord's Supper is that I really had never understood the Lord's Supper to be a sacrament that is feeding me. Um, In the church where I grew up and churches that um, we had attended after that, um, the view of the Lord's Supper was memorial. And so, you know, a memorial is just remembering what has taken place. It's very somber. It's like having a funeral. We're remembering Christ died, and we're sad about that. And, you know, of course, in the Reformed churches, we are reverent about partaking of the Lord's Supper, but there is also a joy there. I I love the way that the Lord's Supper is administered at my church, and our pastor says, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And he is feeding you with this. He is growing you in faith with this. There is, it moves beyond simple remembrance. And it's a joy in being confirmed in your faith. And that was so um, new to me. It just really changed the joy that I was able to have in Um, coming to the Lord's table. I had so many wrong views in growing up. I remember the first time I even took communion. And at that point, my mom explaining it to me that this was a time to remember Christ's death and just the things that I thought were necessary in obedience to do. I really saw it as something that I did. Like I had to remember sufficiently (laughs) Christ. Right. Like that's how I became worthy. And one difference between Federal Vision and the historic Reformed and Biblical position is they, because they believe that their children are united to Christ in baptism, they also believe in paedo communion. And 
there's, I think, some misunderstandings I see sometimes in Facebook groups when people are new to understanding paedo-baptism, then they say, well, why don't your children take communion? Because we don't believe that our children are in that time united to Christ in baptism. And, uh, you know, when my husband and I were studying um, Reformed theology and becoming Reformed, one thing that really stood out to me is that I could not find a command in Scripture to examine anyone before baptism, but I surely could find commands in Scripture to examine yourself before the Lord's table. That seemed to be a very differentiating factor between these two sacraments. And so, you know, one of them signifies entrance into the covenant community, but the other one is a confirmation and um, a continuing and a building up, and those are different. The other thing is church discipline. So if somebody is unrepentant and if you've been in a Reformed church and seen church discipline take place like I have, it's a very long process. If someone remains unrepentant through this long process of confronting them and calling them to repentance, there does end up being an excommunication that they can no longer take communion. And you can't take away someone's baptism, but you can say you can no longer get the benefits of being part of the covenant community in um, participating in communion. You know, Colleen, I wonder if you remember having these sorts of thoughts um, growing up sort of in a similar world to me in taking the Lord's Supper that there was a very, very long time leading up to the administration of the Lord's Supper of confession, private confession and prayer and getting your heart right. And did you, do you remember having thoughts? I know I had these thoughts that I need to make sure that I remember every last thing to confess and thinking to myself, I know there are things I haven't thought of. Now what? Is this okay? And feeling a lot of pressure because of having a misunderstanding of what the sacrament was. Do you remember having thoughts like that? Right. Or maybe I am partaking of the sacrament unworthily because I have neglected to go and confess a sin to a brother. Right, right. Yeah. And yes, partaking in an unworthy manner in my mind um, because of things that I had been taught and had heard in sermons that was paramount to you've done enough good things. You've, you've lived well enough and right enough. And I, I just always had that nagging thought in the back of my mind. If I'm telling the truth, there's no possible way that I've measured up. So now what? <laughs> Am I the only one right. in this room that's going to say, wait a second, I don't think I should take this. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's a result of seeing the sacraments of law as yeah. law instead of as gospel, seeing the sacraments as our work of obedience instead of God's work. That's absolutely right. Let's talk real quickly about prayer. Like I mentioned before, there is a difference between what the three forms of unity and the um, Westminster Standards say as far as whether prayer is a means of grace. And, you know, that's something I would encourage you guys to read about. But Westminster... Shorter Catechism says, what is prayer? 
Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And both the Westminster Standards and the Three Forms of Unity deal with prayer, but they see it just as different. Right. And we didn't read this earlier, but the Heidelberg says that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires from us. And, you know, we've had a past episode about guilt, grace, and gratitude. Um, And so I would encourage our listeners to go check that out. But um, the Heidelberg is organized in those three sections and gratitude is our response to the gospel. So the Heidelberg has prayer as part of that thankfulness that God requires from us and that God only gives grace in his spirit to those who pray, asking and thanking God for these gifts. And um, so prayer falls into that third section, Christian living gratitude. You know, I want to go back just real quick. We did a couple episodes a long time ago about the work of the Holy Spirit. I would recommend Michael Horton's book on rediscovering the Holy Spirit. It's an excellent book because I think that even the charismatic movement has crept into so many people's understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is because of the work of the Holy Spirit that the means of grace are made effectual. And I want to encourage people to really understand the work of the Holy Spirit in the means of grace. And, you know, that I agree that is a very important point, and it's something that was um, a big shift for me in paradigm, understanding that the work of the Holy Spirit is to apply the benefits of Christ to me, is to call sinners and apply Christ's saving work. Um, The work of the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. It's not, oh, my hair stood on end during that song because it was so great. That was the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is calling sinners to Christ and applying the benefits of Christ's saving work. Yeah, the work of the Holy Spirit is what makes dead men alive, you know, think Amen. of Ephesians 2. The work of the Holy Spirit is what sanctifies us because we know that sanctification is a work of God's free grace, it is something the Lord is doing. So we do not downplay the work of the Holy Spirit. I think we even mm-hmm. more elevate the work of the Holy Spirit. Within so many charismatic movements, the work of the Holy Spirit is dependent on us, whether we're doing the right things, whether we're doing what is necessary for these invented means of grace to mm-hmm. come about. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've definitely um, uh, had friends before who really believed that you know, the work of the Holy Spirit is speaking to me and whether or not he can hear is dependent on how well I'm listening. So I have to develop my discipline and really work on, really work on listening for the Holy Spirit and listening for that still small voice. And if I can't hear it, what that tells you is that there's something deficient in my listening. Um, And I think this is why the idea of the means of grace and that doctrine was so comforting to me is that it is not dependent on me. It is dependent on Christ and the means that he has ordained to convey his grace to me. And I can trust that he has promised to be present spiritually in the preaching of his word and the administration of the sacraments. 
And it's that is so freeing. All of the pressure is off because um, just like salvation, it's not a work that I do. It's not something that I depend on myself. It points me to depend on Christ and his finished work. Yeah, he works sovereignly through the means he's created and promised. I wanted to just real quick before we end, just talk really briefly about, I know we've kind of touched on this as we've talked, but I wanted to just talk really briefly about some of the other views out there. Uh, starting with the Catholic view, they they have a very different view of the sacrament. Some people may think that the Catholics believe in a sort of of means of grace, but they the Catholics saw the sacraments as being regarded as causing initial regeneration and increasing in the in the sacrifice of the mass and they see a lot of our own works as necessary to bring mm-hmm. about God's grace. And so it really is sort of synergistic. They believe in that ex opere operato which means yep. by the working it's worked. It means you did it so it's done you you know you had the baptism therefore grace happened to you for sure. But to continue in that we need your works. Right. Right. And if you don't if you don't do enough works, we can just send you to purgatory to work off some of those sins. <laughs> right. Right. And you know, I mentioned this briefly earlier, but also on the Roman Catholic view, ultimately the Roman Catholic view is that the church itself is a means of grace and right. is ele- elevated to the highest means of grace and so they really do this is how they arrive at the conclusion that apart from the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation because the the Roman Catholic Church itself is the ultimate means of conveying grace. Right. And even above the Word of God. That's right. That's right. So now the Anabaptist view where they see more of a, a means of discipline or we even see um, the, with Zwingli these memorial views. Mm, so yeah. the, the Lord's Supper is to remember what Christ has done. And baptism, we do baptism out of obedience. And some of this even goes back to Socinianism. That's something that people can look at. But um, this is related to that the rationalistic view that... The, that what we call means of grace are uh, rights that don't really have any permanent v- validity, but they're just there as moral persuasion um, and that they persuade our minds by um, thinking about what they mean. And that I found that very interesting to read about because that does very much remind me of how my mind worked when um, taking the Lord's Supper back before becoming Reformed is just that this is a time for my mind to think and think really hard about um, what Christ did. And of course, our view is that it's more than that. It's more than what I'm thinking. We see kind of Zwingli's influence here because it's uh, more of my pledge than Mm -hmm. of the Lord's pledge to us, which is exactly what we're talking about in the means of grace. It's about what God does. It's about his promises to us. But 
what is more a predominant view in modern evangelicalism is that it's our pledge to God instead mm-hmm. of God's pledge to us. Um, in, in Burkhoff's systematic, he says they place the emphasis more on what man did in the means of grace than on what God accomplished through them when they spoke of them as mere external badges of profession and of the sacraments as memorials. And even, I think it's almost seen as a spirit as included as a spiritual discipline. I think the spiritual disciplines are often elevated as means of grace. And I think that we can almost in some circles in what I grew up in where that, that was almost more of a spiritual discipline. Yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, that makes sense because if we are lowering the means of grace and their status to, it's about what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, how I'm obeying, then that's automatically putting it on the same plane as the other spiritual disciplines that are held up in that sort of world. For example, quiet time. Um, right. so, so quiet time becomes a means of grace, um, just like taking the Lord's Supper. Wow, I really grew up with almost believing that, that God would give me more grace if I was doing my daily quiet time. Oh, me too. I will never forget a sermon. The, the I can take my mind straight to it and hear the voice say, yesterday's quiet time is not good enough for today. You really need to do it every day. This is how, you know, God is communing with you. And so... um it's, it really is easy to see when you start thinking about it, how these spiritual disciplines get elevated to a means of grace. Yeah, the guilt, I think, especially as a teenager, because I became Reformed young, but as a teenager, the guilt, if I didn't get that hour quiet time in, mm. that I almost felt like I was going to be punished if oh, I didn't yes. get my sufficient quiet time and prayer time in. Well, I certainly thought that I maybe would not have a good day if I didn't get my quiet time in. Um, I don't know if you felt that way, but I remember thinking, uh, and and I remember hearing it said by others as well, you know, I just really noticed that when I get that quiet time in, my day goes so much better. And, um, you know, sometimes I'm having a really bad day. And by the end of the day, I realized, you know what? I didn't have my time with the Lord this morning. And it almost turns into that sort of (laughs) word of faith thought that if I do what I'm supposed to do, then I'm supposed to receive blessing and the blessing of an easy day or a good day or whatever it is. But um, it's a lot of pressure on me to perform. Yeah, I think it really goes back to that law and gospel, Mm. whether we see these means of grace as law or gospel, where... I often thought that I go to church to get that list of what I need to do to be obedient so I could experience the blessings of God. And baptism and the Lord's Supper were more ways for me to be obedient to experience the blessings of God or the quiet time or Mm. these various spiritual disciplines. Yeah. So I hope that this has given just a quick summary because there's so much more we could say on the means of grace. but. This is really just a a summary of what the means of grace are, and 
I do encourage you to look at the episode notes. I'm going to put a bunch of articles in the episode notes, possibly some audios, and then also all of the confessions and catechisms that we talked about today and more. And because we didn't have time to go through all of the scripture passages, I would encourage you to do that. Coming up, probably in the next month or so, we're going to do an episode on worship. We talked previously about the regulative principle of worship, but I want to talk about worship in general because this last week in the Theology Gals group, there was a discussion about worship, and I realized just how many misunderstandings there are about what worship is. I think Mm. today, worship has become so much about me and experiencing something or experiencing the Holy Spirit instead of the true worship that the Word of God lays out, worshiping the God of the universe who sent His Son to die in our place. We appreciate you guys joining us. And again, you can find us at TheologyGals.com. And we will see you next week.